thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, of course, uh, for coming. So it's new media, new possibilities, new dangers. Does the development of new digital technologies and instant access to the Internet provide new opportunities, or are there some new dangers on the way? And most importantly, can good journalism thrive in these circumstances? I've got four panellists to introduce to you. We'll hear a little bit from all of them, and we'll have a bit of a discussion. And then after that, hopefully, you can join in as well. Um, now, what always happens with these things, you get lots of different orders. So I think I have one order which is written down here, one order which our, our guests are going to be uh, are sitting in, and another order in which they're going to do their presentation. So this could get interesting. Uh, closest to me, uh, welcome Professor Mary Singer. Uh, sorry, Jane Singer. I've got it written down in front of me. I still can't get it right. Uh, Jane is from the City University. Uh, next to her, we've got uh, BuzzFeed's Luke Lewis. Uh, Mary Fitzgerald is from Oak, opendemocracy.net. And then Roxanne Farman Farmayan uh, from the University of Cambridge. Uh, welcome to you all. Uh, we're going to start off uh, with Jane, uh, who has a little presentation to begin with. Julian, thanks to all of you for being here. You had lots of good choices, so we're delighted to see you here. I think it'll be um, interesting. Um, I'm going to uh, take maybe a little bit of a roundabout approach, perhaps, to the topic and to, um, to talk about it in terms of a couple of key changes that I've been thinking about um, related to uh, how journalists think about what they do and how they think about their, their roles and how they think about their jobs and how they think about their identity. Um, and how that's changing in, uh, in a digital and a social media world. And I warn you, I'm going to leave it to you at the end to decide whether this is um, dangers or possibilities or a little of both, or we, and we can talk about it, um, I hope. But I'm not going to actually answer that question, um, but maybe you can think about it um, as we go along. Um, and so the two changes that I want to uh, talk about, and you can decide if these relate as well, um, one is what I think is a shift in thinking, of the way that journalists think about you, <laughs> the people out there, the people for whom they're doing their work. Um, shifting from this idea of a public, and I want to suggest that's a very broadly defined idea, um, vaguely defined idea, to the idea of an audience. And you, talk, you can think about whether, because I'm not going to say, you can think about whether you think that's um, positive, negative, a little bit of both. Um, and the other one is something I've been thinking about lately, and actually some of the other panels I've been on, uh, the last one I went to about um, establishment, uh, anti-establishment and establishment thinking was touching on this actually, has to do about, uh, has to do with where the authority rests in what journalists report. And what I want to suggest is that there's some different, there's some things that have been going on kind of over time, but I think now particularly coming to the fore with the rise of fact-checking that are moving some of that authority from journalists relying on, uh, almost exclusively on sources to say what in some cases, the journalists want to say um, to the journalists saying some things on their own authority. And again, you can think about um, whether you think this is good, bad, somewhere in the middle. So let me talk about first uh, this idea of journalism as a as a public service. Um, and I, and I have to apologize for this photo. One. I have to apologize for the glaring whiteness of the people in this photo, um, but also I, you will appreciate the irony, I know. This is actually a picture of the anti-Brexit rally, which people marched on after the vote, um, in, uh, in London uh, back last summer, and, and moreover, it's a Daily Mail photo. So <clears throat> sorry about both of those things, but uh, it was a representation of the British public, so, so there you are. Um, 
So one of my colleagues in America likes to talk about the, the journalist view of democracy, which is a somewhat self-serving kind of view or somewhat self-serving sort of way of thinking about democracy. But it is, I think, how journalists tend to think or historically have thought about what they do and still think about what they do. Um, the idea that journalists, that, that democracy needs journalism, it needs, a kind of, it needs an independent and trustworthy um, uh, voice on our behalf to, sort, to serve as our eyes and ears as citizens. Um, on the one hand, but also not just to be the watchdog and not just to keep an eye on the people holding power in our society, but to give us, to give the, the citizens, the, 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 the people in a democracy, the public, um, the information they need to be free and self-governing. That's the premise of a, uh, of a journalist, at least how journalists see their own role in a democratic society. So there's this, this, this very pretty broad concept of um, what journalists do, and of course we can quibble with kinds of things related to that, including how well they do it. Um, but nonetheless, that's kind of the overall view. So two kind of points, and the, the reason I <laughs> the reason I chose this picture, which again is problematic in a couple different ways. Um, but one is that while you can pick out a few paces in this crowd, this is really, this is a giant amorphous mass of people. We don't really know anything about who these people are. We don't really see them as people. We see them as thousands, there were tens of thousands of people there filling Parliament Square in, in this particular case, but they're just kind of out there. They're just a lot of people who are out there. There's a public. Um, uh, and so, so that's one thing um, that we, that, that journalism, that when journalists historically have thought about what they do, they think about it in terms of the public, these people out there about whom we know very little. Um, and the other point I want to make about this is that, yes, while they're all kind of gathered in one place and there's a whole lot of them, um, this this amorphous giant mass of people is in some ways kind of voiceless, right? You don't really have a voice in the media um, unless you're called out by the journalist as a source. Um, so, and, but then it's the journalist, again, deciding what information to cover and how to cover it, what to, what to say, what you, what you know, what you in turn know about yourself um, as a public. So this is, this is kind of traditionally how journalists have thought about the people for whom they do their job at a, at a broad level. However, um, so where does digital come into this? Well, journalism, of course, has always been uh, as well, for the most part, not all journalism, but most journalism is also part of commercial enterprise, as of course we know. Um, and in the digital era, as I'm sure we also know, the picture has not been pretty. And sorry to kind of, I know I'm mixing some UK and US figures here, but really the picture is pretty broadly similar um, in both uh, Britain and the U.S., you can tell I'm American. And so I do have some American figures, but, um, but also some British ones. So circulation, um, you can see the trend. You don't have to see the details to get the picture there, not a pretty picture. Um, circulations have plummeted, particularly for print, um, and I, I'm kind of focusing on newspapers here. Um, you can think about this in the context of something like the BBC as well, but BBC is kind of steady for a, a variety of reasons. Um, but, but newspaper circulation has plummeted. Ad revenue, revenue in general, um, has plummeted because, um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, not least of them that um, people no longer pay to get in. For the few people who are still um, getting information from newspapers and not really paying for it, they're getting it online where they're mostly getting it for free. Um, and, and the revenue uh, for people wanting to pay to, uh, to advertise in that platform is plummeted. I mean, this is, I think somewhere I have a little pointer here. Uh, doesn't matter. You can see, figures have gone down. Um, and staffing, of course, has gone way down as well. Um, uh, you probably know that uh, the fewer and fewer, I mean, there are more and more layoffs, and there are fewer and fewer journalists um, working in, uh, for news organizations. One figure, however, has gone up, up and up and up, 
uh, continues to go up. These are, these are figures from December of 2015, but the trend is, is broadly um, continuing. So these are UK newspapers, and this is their aggregate, uh, well, this is their online uh, readership. The Daily Mail reaches about eight to every month. These are, these are uh, average daily usage figures. Every month, the Daily Mail reaches about 18 million people. Now, the Daily Mail has a pretty hefty circulation in print, but nowhere near that. I mean, it reaches about 1.6, I think, was the latest figure I saw for them in print. The Guardian is an even better example. The Guardian does pretty well online. They have a lot of readers in, in other countries. They have a lot of readers online um, in this country as well. Um, they're, uh, again, this is daily, but so about 8, eight million people d on a daily basis, about 12 million on a monthly basis. Guardian's print circulation is around 165,000 and falling. Um, so so you, can, you can see that the audience, the reach of these publications is going way, way up, but the money is going way, way down, right? The revenue is going way, way down. Um, so what does this do for us in terms, what is it, how does this relate to this idea of a public and an audience? Well, that economic force, uh, among other things, is, is pushing news organizations, and not just the organizations, but the journalists within the newsroom, to think not about this giant um, uh, amorphous public that they serve and that they act in the public interest and as a public service, but to focus much more on individuals, so not that mass of people um, in Parliament Square or, you know, more metaphorically um, across the country, but about people, individuals, audiences, um, and a, a, a somewhat commercial term, a marketing kind of term, um, and what those people are doing, what they're doing on their mobile devices, what they're doing on their websites, um, what, what they're doing with content. So, it's, so, it's, so journalists increasingly are thinking about an audience as opposed to a public. That's a different conceptualization, and we can talk a little bit more about um, what you think that means. But what it, what it means in terms of revenue for news organizations, um, for, for the most part, is that they're having to think not so much about those raw numbers, because the raw numbers are great. <laughs> the raw numbers are you know, in the tens of millions of people around the world, but they're still losing money. Um, why are they losing money? Because online, the economics don't work the same way um, in terms of your audience. It's not just that you have a big audience and you have advertisers paying to reach that audience. Lots of different things we could talk about, but it doesn't really quite work that way. It works much more about are you engaging? Are you, are you doing something? Are people doing something meaningful with your content? Individuals, are they doing something with you? Are they sharing you? Are they commenting on you? Are they putting you out there on social media? Are they staying with you a long time? Are they reading that long-form story? What is it that you're doing to connect with them as an individual, not as this, or, or, or to a lesser extent, as this broad idea about um, the public, and that means you have to know a lot about them. And that's the, the last slide I'll show you related to this point, because I want to make the other point quickly and then um, uh, hear what the other folks have to say, which I'm really much more interested in um, than when I, I know what I have to say. Um, the, the reason, the, the, the way that this is, is playing out in newsrooms, which you, you may know or you may not know, um, is that every news organization now tracks minute by minute <laughs> Um, not those quarterly circulation figures that we used to get when I was working in newsrooms a long time ago. Um, exactly what people are doing online. This is a, a, a screenshot from Chartbeat, which is one of the more widely used metric um, tools that is, is uh, installed in newsrooms now that, that they're looking at. And, it, and it's not just the editors, it's not just the publishers, it's not just the people in the boardroom, it's the individual journalists are getting this information uh, literally 
around the clock. Now, they may not be looking at it around the clock, but it's pretty much available to them. And if you, <laughs> again, think about this as opposed to this idea of uh, journalism serving a democratic citizenry, uh, these people are members of a democratic citizenry, and most of them probably are, um, but this is about very specifically what's happening to each individual story, and you may not be able to read this, but you know, here's a story about political, actor, political leaders um, urging action on a debt limit. Well, how many people have looked at that? Um, there's more information. You could scroll through this if this were a real screenshot, a real uh, uh, a website. Um, you know, how, what are they doing there? How much are they using it? How Are they sharing it? Um, this is engagement. We have reading. We have writing. We have... Um, uh, different, different information, all kinds of information, different information on here about what people are doing with um, information um, online. So this is audience metric data. It is very much a part of uh, the news uh, culture now and, and never was before. So I think that's one way that social, uh, that digital and social media are changing journalism. So we've got these economic forces and we've got this technological force that we now have the ability to track uh, what individuals are doing with every one of our stories almost in real time. Well, actually, forget the almost, in real time. So that's a different conceptualization of, of journalism and what journalism is about. That was one point I wanted to make. The other point I wanted to make um, is a little bit different, but see what you think about this. So two, two things we can talk about later if we have the time. Um, and this one's more about sourcing, and, and I think maybe the connection to the digital world is uh, maybe a little bit um, more attenuated, but I think it's very much there. Well, think about what journalists traditionally, how journalists traditionally get those stories um, or get that information that they put in the, in the newspaper or on the BBC or uh, whatever it might be in the, in the Economist, whatever you want to pick. There's kind of two ways. The first one is actually um, not as common really as the second one, to be honest. Um, the first one is first-hand observation. So either they go to planned events come to something like this, or they go to a council meeting, or they go to a press conference, or whatever it might be. There's a lot of that, of course, that, that journalists do. Or there's a crisis that is so big and so important that the journalist gets sent to cover it. A war, um, you know, devastation from a hurricane, a, 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 whatever it might be, an earthquake. Um, big, big, big situations that journalists can care. There's actually relatively little of that. It's very expensive for a news organization to do. Um, but there is first-hand observation. So journalists go out, they, they see something, they report on it, they write about it, they, they stand there with the camera, they stand there with the uh, uh, microphone. The other way, and the, and the more prominent way, and in many ways the more problematic way, um, is sources. Huge amounts of information that we get comes from someone saying something to a journalist. Now, that's fine um, as far as it goes, but the problem with that, which is in, it just become blatantly obvious, I think, and you think about how Brexit was covered, you think about what's going on in the U.S. now with the political campaign, um, what happens is that the journalist will, the journalist is probably immersed in the story, kind of has a pretty good sense of what's going on, but can't really speak on his or her own authority about what's going on. You have to get under the journalistic kind of way things get done, you have to get someone to tell you what's going on or to tell you what they think about it. And so journalists rely a lot on their sources. Again, fine as far as it goes, but what you wind up with very often is what we call he said, she said journalism, which means, you know, Boris Johnson says this and then David Cameron, Theresa May, whoever it might be, says this other thing, and we tell you what Boris said and we tell you what Theresa said, and then you figure it out. <laughs> you know, you figure out what's important, what's meaningful, who's telling the truth. Um, you know, think about Brexit. This is essentially what happened with Brexit coverage. Some of the coverage was pretty good. Some was awful. Um, but some was pretty good. But this is what it looked like. 
it looked like the leave people saying one thing, the remain people saying the other thing. We didn't really, it was hard to know who was telling the truth. And ultimately, a lot of people decided, well, the hell with it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to vote on what I think is, you know, the best thing to do because I don't believe um, anybody anymore. They're clearly just making these statements. They're playing each other off. So a problem with journalism. I want to suggest that the digital world, and I'm sorry, this is kind of cluttered page. I'm sorry, all my all my pages are kind of cluttered. Um, but I want to suggest that the digital world has in, we've increasingly seen journalists taking on a voice in a way that they haven't done. Um, that hasn't been quite as obvious, I think, in the past. This is not new. There have been other forms of journalists taking on a voice in, in various ways. But I think the digital environment, um, and now increasingly the social environment, has created some sort of interesting permutations of this. And you can start with blogs, which journalists made a lot of fun of when they first came along. People out there typing things in their pajamas and who knows who these people are. And then within a matter of literally months, the journalists were writing their own blogs, um, uh, doing their own news blogs. And then, of course, that became social. Uh, Twitter is a blog. It's a microblog, social media. So that kind of evolved into that. And you see more and more people, uh, journalists um, having a voice, expressing themselves, developing a brand in many cases. Think about Robert Peston and various other journalists who became really known for their voice on social media. And the one I want to actually um, uh, highlight uh, quickly and then, uh, and then stop is, um, is fact-checkers. I think fact-checkers are really interesting. And, of course, in some ways, journalists are always fact-checkers. That's what we do. We are supposed to root out the truth and find the facts. But we have very much devolved into the situation where we're letting someone else tell us what the facts are, and then we're reporting what those people tell you what the facts are. Fact-checkers are fascinating because they're more about the journalists putting the evidence out there on their own authority, on their own journalistic authority, and saying, here's what's going on. They have proliferated around the world. PolitiFact is kind of the, the, the granddaddy of them. Well, it's not very old. Um, 2007, I believe, it started. Uh, it's won a Pulitzer Prize, a really, really amazing site um, in terms of holding people to account. They have proliferated all over the world. The full fact is the British one. If you haven't, uh, if you don't know it, uh, it's the UK one. Check it out. They do quite a good job. Um, but they're all over. They're in France. They're in Africa. They're in South America. They're in um, uh, uh, Australia. I think that one's from. They're, they're from all over. So an interesting kind of um, example of journalists um, on their own authority calling uh, people out for their accounts. This is a, a little bit different example, but real quickly put it in there. Um, front page editorial. I'm, I'm kind of out of time, so I'm going to fly through that. Very unusual, less unusual here, but in America, you would never see a newspaper putting an opinion, a newspaper like the New York Times, um, putting an opinion on the front page. They did that. I can talk more about it later, but I'll, I, I'm out of time. I do just want to show some examples of fact-checking uh, now in the, uh, in, in the world of, of Trump. And all of these are, these are good news organizations. This is CNN, NBC, uh, major American broadcaster, Washington Post, New York Times, and um, uh, the BBC up there, BBC Reality Check. Um, so what they're doing is they're checking information uh, not so much on sources, but going back in the archives. What did these people say before? What, is the, what does the document say? What actually happened in Congress? What actually is the fact here? Um, and putting it out there. Um, I don't think, I, why does this connect to, to digital? Um, because there really wasn't time or space to do this um, in, a, in a traditional environment, uh, and they're, as I said, spreading all over the world. So um, I'll, I'll end there, um, and uh, I hope we can talk about some of these things. I hope that wasn't too, too disjointed, but I thought both of those were, were interesting and are um, uh, aspects of things that have come uh, about, I think, um, 
I don't want to say because of digital, but have been, have been enabled uh, because of this world that we're in. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jane. Lot, lots to pick up, really, in there. I wanted to uh, ask you a, a couple of things, uh, if I may. Yes. First of all, uh, the figures that you showed for the Daily Mail and the Guardian, particularly the online figures. Now, both of those newspapers, for different reasons, heavy on the United States. They do quite yes. a bit of marketing yes. there, yes, yes. Don't, don't they? So those figures would have been included in the, yes. in the stats, stats Yes, those, are, those were global figures, and that's a really good point, too. Uh, you know, another thing that, of course, digital media has enabled is, is to erase these, these geographic boundaries. So the Guardian is no, and the, or the Daily Mail um, is no longer confined to reaching a British audience. The Guardian, uh, the last figures I saw, this, don't quote this, it may not still be true, but they had a third of their digital audience in the UK, a third in the North America, and a third around the rest of the world. So, so over half, that probably is still true, over half of their online usage is elsewhere, which also raises interesting issues related to who is the public, who are you, who are you writing for, um, all those kinds well, yeah, of things. Well, yeah, because at the beginning you yeah. made the quip about the, the, yeah. the, daily, the Daily Mail. Sorry, I was just... Uh, but they were all, oh, no. all newspapers <laughs> historically have mm -hmm. had their, you know, the perceptions that, that people, people have Who about them. And, and I, I think of, as well, you know, say, sort of the change which the Daily Express has been mm -hmm. through over the years, mm -hmm. whereas you know, now you could make fun of the Daily Express quite happily because it alternates clearly its uh, front page headlines between statins, Madeleine McCann, and the dreaded Arctic winter, which is going to be coming anyway soon. Yes. But you could argue that they're just applying your point of making sure that they are appealing to what their readers want to read because they wouldn't be putting these stories, however mm -hmm. preposterous they might be, on the front page if they didn't know it was going to sell to the sort of people they're trying to reach. Yes, and they're, and they're trying to differentiate themselves. I mean, uh, one of the wonderful things about the British media market is that you do have a vibrant and competitive national press. And so if I'm the Daily Express, I've got to sort of figure out what I do <laughs> that maybe um, will help differentiate me. Um, but yes, I, I mean, the short version is yes, that very much that's about knowing what your audience is going for and catering to it. You know, I think you want to be careful, though, about saying that everyone is necessarily catering in a negative sense to their audience. If I'm the New York Times or the Guardian, I'm going to know a lot more about my audience than I ever did, but it still doesn't mean I'm going to write all the time about Madeleine McCann. I mean, I'm just not going to do that because that's not what, that, that's not what I do. So, so I'm not sure that knowing uh, this information is... Um, I think changing the way journalists think about their audience and think about what they do, I'm not sure that it inherently gives us worse journalism. I actually don't think it does. It just gives us different journalism. It gives us a different understanding of uh, the nature of the journalism that we're doing, maybe would be a good way to say it. Yeah. Uh, loads of other notes here, but I think we should probably move on. I'll come back yes. to maybe some of them a little later on. I'm going to ask uh, Luke to uh, come tell us a little bit about BuzzFeed uh, for those who needs to know. I've written in my notes here Ooh. that BuzzFeed is kind of the antidote to the Huffington Post, but uh, you probably have a better description. <laughs> a cool way of looking at it. Um, I guess it's a panel discussion, so we, should we just sit here? I'm going to sit down. Uh, I, I was worried I don't when have you all left, but now that you're coming back, it, it's, just, it's just fine. Um, so, yeah, this is a festival of ideas, so I'll, I'll talk about what the idea originally of BuzzFeed in the UK was, because I launched the, the uh, UK edition of BuzzFeed uh, almost four years ago, it was March 2013, and I essentially had one idea of what it should be, and that was it should be an alternative 
to traditional media. Traditional media as represented by the newspapers and the newspaper sites. And so we sort of came at, came at that in a few different ways. First of all, just the form, right? So your standard news article online in 2013, they pretty much all looked the same. It was one photo, about 500 words of text, and quite a boring, robotic headline. And usually that headline was designed, it was full of keywords so that it would appear top of search results. Um, so what we introduced was a much more... Well, first of all, we made the articles much more visual, so crammed them with photos scrolling down the page. We also made the headlines more conversational. So the idea was that if you were just telling a story to your friend in a pub, this, this, that's, that would be your headline. Um, so, for example, like today, you know, we might publish something like, UKIP are totally screwed, here's what you need to know about it. You know, it's, just, it's conversational. And the reason for that was because those kind of headlines perform much better on social media. So if you weren't worried about appearing top of search results on Google, it was all about creating uh, headlines that were conversational and, and natural and just human because they, they shared better. Um, and now, if you see a, a standard news article online, it pretty much looks like a BuzzFeed article. You know, it's very visual and it scrolls down the page. Um, so I think we, d we definitely did change things there. But also the, the content mix. You know, we wanted uh, news and entertainment to, 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 to coexist. And we, we were keen to reflect the sort of regional totality, to, totality of Britain. So, you know, we wrote a lot about Welsh identity and Scottish identity and what it was like to be a northerner and all that kind of stuff was really important to us. Um, there was humour in there as well. And also we wanted to make it distinctively British because this was the point. It was, it was back then, it was known as an American site. So we really ramped up the Britishness and, there was, um, and we thought a lot about that because initially there was a kind of uplifting, um, very shareable article that was doing very well in the US and they had a huge, like, mega viral post which was photos that will restore your faith in humanity, right? <laughs> and so we tried to mimic that because, you know, we wanted our articles to go viral as well um, and we realised quickly that British people... <laughs> did not have any faith in humanity. Uh, if they had any, they certainly didn't want it restored. So we stopped. <laughs> so, so that was an early lesson. We just like dialed up the Britishness. We made it more about you know self-deprecation and and uh, and just, just you know the sort of tragedy of being British. <laughs> um, so there was a, there was that content mix that we uh, that we uh, it was really important that we offered something different, distinctive. Um, and, and also, in terms of our reporting, I was really keen, and in this we took our, our cues from, from the US, really, that there, there would be no opinion. All our impact would come from our reporting. And in fact, we have never been politically aligned either, you know, which, made, which really made us stand out. You know. um, so there were no kind of um, leader pieces. You know, we, we, we didn't come down on either side um, in, in general elections and to tell our readers how to vote. You know, that it was really important for us to be impartial and to have impact purely through original reporting. And so four years on, really, really proud of what we've achieved journalistically. I mean, just last, just a couple of weeks ago, we, we published in collaboration with Newsnight, um, a huge investigation into... Awful, awful practices at RBS, whereby they were basically running healthy businesses into the ground in order to boost their own profits. This was in the wake of the um, financial crisis. 
you know, and that had an immediate impact. And that's a, there's a level of scrutiny on them, parliamentary scrutiny, that you know I think will really, really, it's it's, it's going to have an impact. And who knows, maybe someone will actually be punished for the financial crisis. There'll be a first. Um, there was also uh, an investi investigation we did into uh, labour practices at ASOS, you know, the uh, online retailer. Um, and I mean, before the week was out, I mean, there was a statement from ASOS saying they were going to they were going to change some of those exploitative practices. So really, really proud of the sort of impact we've had with our journalism. But I have to say, you know, I had this great I, like, sort of I, idea of of challenging the media establishment. But then Brexit happened. So you have this, this, this narrative in your head that, like, the tr traditional media, the newspapers declining, readership going down, advertising revenue going down, and the, the new media publishers, like BuzzFeed, going up, you know. But then Brexit happened, and, I, and it, it, was, it was a real lesson to me that the right-wing newspapers in Britain have as much power to shape the national conversation now as they ever did, you know. So in many ways they're declining. But it almost they seem to be more confident now that, than ever. And so you had you know, an extraordinary couple of front pages a couple of weeks ago where the Daily Express and the Daily Mail were both talking about silencing anyone who, who wanted Britain to, to stay in the EU. Uh, the Daily Express said, EU exit whinges have to, should be silenced. And there was a thing inside about like snake-like tre treachery has to be punished. Um, you know, extraordinary like, anti-democratic kind of... Um, rhetoric. And then this week we've had The Sun calling for Gary Lineker to be fired for showing compassion to child refugees. I mean, it's just <laughs> extraordinary. So, you know, the, the, the newspapers still they've not, you know, lost that sort of um, power over, over the national conversation. But the way I see it, I, th I think it's sort of like a, a death rattle. You know, this is, they know, they know that their power is declining and this is kind of their last chance to really flex their muscles and I think you've really seen that post Brexit um, and I feel like it's a bit like Donald Trump you know like the, the, the less chance he has of, of, of winning like the more mad he gets you know <laughs> and so I think what we're seeing at the moment with the, with, with the right wing print media is, is this kind of death rattle kamikaze craziness anyway um, so and in terms of like uh, BuzzFeed's ideas for, for the future, I mean, it's, it's three things, really, the future of media to us. It's global, it's mobile, and it's distributed. Uh, that sounds like coral corporate jargon, but I'll, I'll quickly rattle through what I mean by that. I think the future of media is global because increasingly the internet conversation is, is a global one. Um, and you think of it in pop culture, you know, for the first time, we've got people all over the world discussing a show like Game of Thrones together you know, at the same time. Uh, and in terms of um, BuzzFeed reporting as well, I mean, the, the most read article on BuzzFeed this, this year was what came to be known as the Stanford Letter. And this was a woman who was a victim of a sexual assault uh, at Stanford University. And she addressed her attacker in court and then gave BuzzFeed the full text of what she'd said to her attacker. It was incredibly eloquent, um, incredibly powerful. It was many thousands of words long. Um, but it had this huge impact, and it had something like 20 million views in English. We translated it into six different languages, and it, it, you know, it, was, it was shared widely in all of those languages. So that was something that we were proud of because it would, had, really s had really generated a global conversation around sexual violence you know, in, a, in a way that had never really been possible before. 
So global is important. Mobile because you know it, it used to be the case that journalists would. Uh, I think this was, it was a great shame that everything was being shrunk down to a small screen. Everything's going to be bite sized It's going to have to people's attention spans are so small, um, so short. Everything's going to have to be yeah, short form or bite size, and that's very much not the case. You know, so that Stanford letter I mentioned, something like ninety percent of the views of that article were on mobile, and people are perfectly willing to scroll endlessly for a really, really, really in-depth article. Um, so that, yeah, the future is definitely mobile. And distributed is this, increasingly the reality is that publishers can't rely on uh, people clicking links and, and coming back to their owned and operated sites and apps. You, know, you have to find readers where they are, and that means being agnostic over whether people read your content on your owned and operated properties or on social media platforms. Uh, so one example of that for BuzzFeed that's, that's been huge this year is, is Tasty. I don't know if, if uh, how many of you are familiar with, it, with, with Tasty, but you would recognise it if, if you saw it in your newsfeed because it's like sh they're food videos, they're shot from above, and they're phenomenally popular on Facebook. Um, and so it's only been going for a year, Tasty, but it's already the, the biggest food network in the world. And so you have that kind of explosive growth that has been... Um, made possible by Facebook. It's very difficult to get that, that kind of explosive growth um, on other, any other platform. So those are, the, those are the three trends, yeah, global, mobile, distributed. And I think that was it. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to pick you up on a, on a, on a couple of things from that. Um, first of all, you mentioned um, newspapers and people going to them in and around Brexit. Is that, you said it was a death rattle, I wonder if it's also a similar effect to if the Queen Mother dies or England have a nasty football match uh, to play, we'll go to the BBC. People do the traditional hmm. thing at times of national crisis, as it were. Would, uh, do, do you think there's hmm. any, any, any reason in that? And then perhaps they will then return over time back to the online sources they've gradually gotten used to. Yeah, well, I think you have to be careful not to compete with places like the BBC where they are strongest, which is breaking news. Um, so I was always very keen from, from the start at BuzzFeed that we should like, look for the gaps in, in traditional media coverage, like the topics that were being underreported. So, I mean, one of the first reporters we ever, we ever hired was a guy called Patrick Strudwick, who is um, an LGBT reporter, and he's still, to this day, the only dedicated LGBT reporter at a major publisher in the UK. So it's like you find areas where traditional publishers are weak. So for us, it was LGBT issues, it was gender equality, um, trans rights, those kind of things. And for us to expect millions of people to come to BuzzFeed News for a huge, like an event like the Queen Mother, Queen, Queen dying. I mean, that's, that's the BBC's wheelhouse. So. And in terms of the demographic of the BuzzFeed reader, if, if, you, were, if you were a newspaper, where... Where would you sit? And you're allowed to say that your separate sections would sit everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the readership of the traditional media, I mean, it is shockingly high, especially newspaper readers. I mean, if, if you look at the like, average age of um, a print newspaper reader, whether it's the Guardian or the Telegraph or the Sun, really, really high. Um, so that's definitely an so opportunity you're for, to bring, for BuzzFeed. bring the demographic down. Yeah, young, yeah, young and, and, and the newspapers know this because you know, they have a certain agenda that obviously plays well with their old 
existing readership, you know, very, very pro-Brexit, anti-immigration, all that stuff. And when you see the online presence, none of that stuff features. So if you look at the Sun's Snapchat channel, which is really, really good, and obviously going for a much younger audience, there's no mention of Brexit, no mention of immigration, because they know that younger people hate that sort of thing. Because there's a real disconnect there, I think. And I think that's the challenge that, that newspaper publishers have. They have this legacy business, and they know it's not going to last forever. And that's why I mentioned this death rattle thing, because it's like as they see that audience disappearing, they get, they're going after them in a, in a more and more sort of mad way, and, and how much more are, extreme yeah. way. Are, are, the, are the, the printed media, are, are they, are you say, are they in denial, or are they realising what's happening and doing their best to... To scramble around through different versions of, you know, or trying try to do what you're doing, only ending up doing it badly for whatever reason. Yeah, Sometimes I, I well, honestly don't. I honestly don't know, but um, I mean, because part of this talk is supposed to be about, about the dangers of, of new media, right? And, um, but I think all the, all the dangers are coming from from old media. You know, the, really the, the ramping up <laughs> of the, the, the rhetoric, especially around, new media, so especially around uh, immigration. But th- there is another thing. Um, about the way media is headed, and I think this is partly a function of social media, whereby, because of the way the Facebook algorithm works in particular, you know, increasingly you become surrounded by, it's that filter bubble effect, where you're only reading opinions that you already agree with, and things become increasingly polarised. And I don't, I think that is definitely an issue, and it's, and it's getting worse, and I think it's, you can see that reflected in the fact that, like, Politically, the centre seems to have disappeared. It's all about the you know, polarity. And picking up in part on one of uh, Jane's earlier points, I was wondering when you were talking about you know, your rewriting of headlines, do you also literally rewrite them? If a, if a story isn't performing well, do you tinker around with the headline because you know that a headline which was done in a similar way worked really, really well last time mm. around? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's one thing that um, I think Busby does, does really well. Is, is learning from data and also multivariant testing, which I don't know if many other publishers do Multi-B, that. Multivariant, explain what that is. A-B testing. Yeah, A-B testing, or in fact, it's, it's not so much A-Bs. Like, but every, everything we publish, there's many different versions of it go out. So different headlines and different thumbnail photos. The thumbnail photo is actually really key, especially on Facebook. So uh, BuzzFeed writers are, are trained to write several different versions and then uh, several hours later, the best-performing one, the one that's clicked the best or shared the best, that becomes the default. So that this, is, this is like when you see on, uh, I think on Facebook and some sites, you see you know twenty celebrities you didn't know who were dead, and there's a picture <laughs> of Tom Selleck who isn't dead one. to illustrate it with, which of course I didn't know he died, and of course mm. he hasn't because yeah. you then you discover when you've spent a lot of time clicking and clicking. Well, that's who yeah, but that, that's clickbait, isn't it? The definition clickbait, of clickbait yes. is, is something where you know you click the link and then you're disappointed by what you see because you've been cheated. And Buzzfeed <laughs> definitely doesn't do well, that. Of course. It's, it's but do you use the, but same, there is definitely you use a science. the same techniques, though, as, well, as they de- might? Yeah, there is a science to, to thumbnail photos and headlines in, in particular. Um, yeah, yeah. and, and that, I, I love all that stuff, though, the, sort of the, the science of, of getting people to, to click and share. But the golden rule is you should just never cheat. In fact, I think BuzzFeed is sort of the opposite of clickbait because we're always really careful to say exactly what people will get. You know, we'll if, we'll if, it's, we'll if, it's if it's a celebrity post and it's like 23 photos of Benedict Cumberbatch stroking cats, that's exactly what you're going to get, you know. 
Can't wait to read that one. Right. Um, uh, Luke, thank, thank you very much. I, I think you have something in common with, with, with Mary from Open Democracy, who's going to speak next, because you're, you're both lacking in sleep, I gather, at the moment, for one reason or another. Uh, yes, yeah. I was on a, on a flight from New York last night. And I have a six-month-old son, so... <laughs> a, fl a flight from New York every night. Okay. Yeah, pretty much, exactly. Um, hi, everyone. I just want to do a quick test, so I'm getting this at the right level. Who has heard of Open Democracy? Uh, okay, so that's pretty good. And who reads it more, like, once a month or more, maybe? Okay, less people. <laughs> um, so I'll just I'll introduce it briefly to, to the whole room so everyone know, knows um, what I'm talking about. Um, Open Democracy is a global website. We've been around since 2001. We're s very small compared with BuzzFeed. We had about 8 million unique hits last year. Um, we are uh, significantly different from BuzzFeed in many ways, but um, one of them being that we are a not-for-profit, um, and we're funded by philanthropy, by reader donations, um, by editorial partnerships with academic institutions and NGOs. So our, our business model is different. Um, this touches a little bit on uh, what Jane was saying, but um, clicks, the number of clicks are only one metric of success or value for us, and they're actually fairly low in terms of our priority level because we don't, we don't really have advertisers. So we don't have to demonstrate to advertisers um, how many readers we have. We, we value much more impact in all the different ways that impact can be uh, measured, um, whether that's a citation in Parliament or whether that's um, uh, someone notable mentioning it or, or citing us or whether um, that's someone republishing what we publish because we're a Creative Commons license, so anybody um, can take our material and republish it. Um, and one of the part of our value proposition is that what we publish travels as far as it possibly can without our permission um, because we want to be influencing wider and wider circles of, of people. And we cover you know, global issues uh, across the board, human rights, uh, justice, um, politics, uh, environment, um, we have a mission statement, uh, which is uh, to inspire, uh, to challenge power and inspire change through tenacious reporting, thoughtful analysis, and democratic debate. We rarely break news. Sometimes we break news, but that's sort of by accident or because something's just kind of fallen on us as opposed to it being part of what we do. Uh, one of our uh, big fans, Ivan Krastev, once said about us, um, today it's um, very easy to understand what, uh, to know what is happening in the world, but to understand why it's happening, you need to read Open Democracy. Um, we publish big, long academic pieces, up to 10,000 words. We publish listicles, we publish video, audio, we do a range of different content um, formats, and we, we, we see value in all of those in, in, in different ways. Um, so, um, I suppose to pick out some of the points that both, both of you were talking about and actually to take an example of where we did uh, break news. Our biggest story last year um, was the resignation of Peter Oborn from the Daily Telegraph. He um, wrote quite a passionate 3,000-word uh, resignation letter on open democracy. Um, he was the political, chief political commentator of the Telegraph at the time, and he had discovered that the Telegraph was um, spiking stories that were negative about HSBC um, because HSBC was a big advertiser, to quote one of the executives, the advertiser you literally couldn't afford to offend. Um, he wrote this resignation letter the week of Swiss leaks, so when HSBC was in news for all kinds of reasons, and obviously it had a very big impact because it is very rare for journalists to stand up and say, this is what I know, 
um, and uh, you know, sue me. <laughs> um, because most journalists are quite um, concerned about keeping their jobs. Um, Peter has a very big reputation and um, he didn't have to worry as much about that, but most people I speak to who have similar concerns about um, commercial imperatives interfering with editorial decisions or people who would never, never say something like that publicly for fear of never working again. Um, and uh, I think in terms of the danger side of the new media and the danger side of things, as these traditional revenue models collapse, um, you hear more and more stories about um, businesses that are struggling to stay afloat, having to um, make, these, uh, make these challenging decisions. And um, certainly The Telegraph, I think, probably took it further than most other conventional newspapers in terms of being willing to sell their editorial line in certain circumstances or um, suppress certain negative reporting. Um, it's increasingly something I hear about across the industry. Um, and that's where we, we come in because we think, you know, you've got to have more, you've got to have more open democracies. You've got to have more in small, relatively small, independ independent media outlets. And that is something that new media is, is enabling in one sense. But the revenue model with us and with all others like us is also very precarious. We rely on philanthropy. We were just talking beforehand about how there isn't really a culture of philanthropy in Britain that can sustain lots of independent media houses that tell you these kinds of stories. Um, and readers are so used to um, reading everything for free that when you say, hey, why don't you chip in for this work, you know, this story that we did a lot of work to produce, very, 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 very few of them do. I mean, there are some wonderful people out there who do, but it's, it, you know, it doesn't sustain um, the kind of operations we run. So both, at the paradoxically, at the same time, there's opportunities for many like BuzzFeed or like Open Democracy to exist at the same time, uh, the revenue models um, are making it harder and harder for organisations like ours to exist. Um, the other thing I would like to mention about Open Democracy, I think which is different, is that most of us are not uh, trained journalists in the classic sense. We are a network of editors and we have a lot of freelance contributors, which means so very few of the people on staff have actually gone to City University as I did and done, you know, the sort of professional uh, training. Um, and I wonder if that's the same at BuzzFeed. I mean, I don't know how, where, how that... So people at uh, Open Democracy come to Open Democracy through academia, through activism, um, through politics, through, through um, other professions, um, and they pick up the skills required along the way. But there's often some interesting gaps, for example, knowledge of media law. When I came along, I was like, okay, we've really got to have some media law seminars here because this is quite a miracle that nothing has gone wrong so far. Um, I was wondering, I've heard the same anecdotally about lots of new media, that you, d you don't have that some sort of professional mm. qualification S Some, some system. reporters have come from places like City, but mm. the problem with hiring from, um, from journalism schools is that often it's, the, it's a certain kind of candidate, and, and mm -hmm. the kind of candidates that apply are all sort of white blokes of a certain type. Yeah. And, and so we, we're really keen to build a more diverse group of reporters and so often you have to go and find those people um, so we started a, a like a fellowship scheme mm. so we we're finding people who hadn't gone to journalism school but we were training them up ourselves and that was a much better way of getting a more sort of diverse pipeline of candidates we have exactly the same problem and something we talk about a lot is uh, particularly again this is this is this is part of the uh, revenue model problem is that essentially journalism has become Become to pay, come to pay so badly that the only people who can afford to be journalists are people who have independent yeah. means um, or who can live in London with their parents while they're training and doing internships for free and, and all the rest. And that, that is 
probably one of the most dangerous things <laughs> about this whole situation is that you have people filtering and reporting on the world and editing the world, editing the news, who come from a very, very, very small socio-economic um, group. And they're, they're writing articles about MPs coming from a very small socio-economic yeah, yeah, group. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, it, it's, it's an echo chamber. It's the same thing, really, as, as the filter bubble you were talking about. I mean, it's, it's really people having conversations with themselves in the circle they know. Um, I think this is, again, one of the reasons that Brexit um, may, have, may have happened, is that so few people who were reporting on this could conceive of the fact that Brexit might actually happen, um, that there was a real kind of establishment blindness um, effect, I think, even in the reporting as well as... It's funny because we, we talk of what it is talked about, but it's the so-called Westminster bubble, mm. but actually there's, there is, there within is a that, there's a, a journalistic bubble or London South East bubble, which yeah. Cambridge yeah. sort of gets caught into in a, in, yeah. in a roundabout way. Yeah, it does. I and mean, when you're a global website operating in the UK from London, although we have many editors and contributors who live all over the world, you s it's still a challenge to sort of break out of that. And that's precisely why we tend to go for people who aren't necessarily trained in the classic sense. But many of our contributors are also activists or academics or people who've got something interesting to say. I suppose that's the other thing, is that we don't, we don't have that view of the public out there um, in, in the classic sense. Um, and we also... I think we accept the fact that nobody's neutral and that that, 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 that elusive journal, journalistic objectivity thing. We've just sort of said, well, it's much better to show your colours on your sleeve and be honest about the perspective you're coming from and then try and commission lots of different perspectives that are very obviously different perspectives in order to get a rounded picture rather than to do this he said, she said reporting, which doesn't really get you anywhere and also doesn't re isn't, isn't very transparent about what your own bias coming to the story is. And, and do you have evidence that your, your readers are, are reading the round rather than just those items that they feel they agree with largely? I mean, we try very hard to um, challenge people's um, biases and work outside filter bubbles in a certain number of ways. The way we curate our front page, for example, we tend to put opposing viewpoints right next to each other um, we might run a series on Facebook in a day that has several different perspectives. We try as much to sort of surprise people with things that they might not have been thinking about. Um, but we, and and you know, that's been some of the feedback is, you know, we do reader surveys and so on, and they say, what we really like about open democracy is the fact that, you know, you challenge my views even when I disagree with you or you change my mind about something. I think 65% of our readers in the last survey said that they'd had their minds changed by something they read on open democracy, which is something we're very proud of. Um, but, you know, survey groups are self-selecting as well, so <laughs> who really and, and knows? Your, and your readers, are they coming to you via, via similar routes, uh, as Luke was mentioning, BuzzFeed? Are you, are you getting out there into, presumably, both social media and the, the, the aggregators as yeah. well in order to pu push your content forward? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 uh, we benefit from better SEO than we deserve because we've been around for so long. <laughs> we don't do, you know, much SEO work, but, but it, it, our ranking is quite good nevertheless. Definitely, a so social is the biggest growth area. But something as well, I guess, like co-op, for example. Uh, Luke mentioned the the work with Newsnight. You mentioned that Peter Oborn exclusive mm -hmm. that is going to get your name, uh, dare I say, into the, into the into the into that old traditional media in in order to make people think, oh, maybe I'll go and have a look well, at that. Then. What's, see, this is interesting because that would be, that's not what we're trying to do. We just want the story to get out there. We don't. We're not as conscious and and careful about our brand as perhaps we should be, and that's one of the things I've been thinking about. So yes, our stories very often get into other media, and they often get into other media without without being credited to us. Yeah, that, um, that's the real, that's the real problem. Of well, 
is it, well, is it? I mean, no, the more important the story are. gets there, right? I mean, I think as you know, the CEO, we should be credited more often. You know, that's something that I have to sort of chase people and make sure that they make that happen. But but actually, it's it's sort of much more important the stories out there in the ecosystem. It matters because then I have to go and sit down with the funder and say that story was actually ours. That's why you should continue supporting us. So a bit more brand recognition be better from from that perspective. I was going to say that that's the key thing because if you're putting the vir the virtual bucket around to either philanthropists or to, I don't know if you do, I've, I've seen The Guardian do this. Uh, mm. You go and it's like, you know, support this journalism, great journalism, you know, mm. give, give some money, go and buy the newspaper then. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I have one thing I have sympathy yeah, with Rupert Murdoch over is, um, I think, I mean, our, we, we will not put up a paywall because that's one of our sort of key principles is a Creative Commons license. But I have to say the one thing I really agree with Rupert Murdoch on is actually that we should all have paywalls because actually this stuff takes money to produce. And if you don't, if you don't pay for it, then you're, it's going to, there's going to be an, another trade-off, whether that's the trade-off the Telegraph was making or sponsored content that perhaps most readers don't know is sponsored content or, you know, there are other things that... Um, I, I, do that I do sometimes wonder if people look at how much they're paying for their, their broadband and think that everything either is or should be included as, as part of that. You know, we, we pay a fortune for, you know, Virgin's uh, top rate is something like £42 a month. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, well, maybe they should subsidise think, think how you probably buy all of, the, <laughs> all of the dailies every day for that, uh, yeah. that amount of money. Yeah. Um, thank, thank you, very, thank thank you very much, Mary. Better move on because uh, we'll hear from... Uh, Roxanne, uh, who has a presentation to, to guide us through to start off with. Yes, this is going to be a little different. I'm going to switch locations, if uh, nothing else. Although it's based on certainly being global, um, we're going to look at uh, what has happened since the, well, primarily since the uh, Arab Spring and uprisings in the Middle East, because we heard an awful lot about how social media played during those uprisings and not a lot about what has happened since. So um, the last three years I've been running a research project uh, at the University of Cambridge but with funding from Al Jazeera and it's the first time ever that a uh, Middle East broadcaster has funded a academic program outside of the Middle East and in a academic setting where they have absolutely no control. So a bit of a chapeau to them for that. And it's been on media and political transition uh, in the southern Mediterranean. As we know, um, Tunisia began the whole process and demonstrations rolled across from Yemen to Morocco. My project looks at Turkey, uh, Tunisia, and Morocco, and I'll be drawing on social media use uh, and activism that took place in all three of those. Um, these movements not only used traditional activism, obviously placards and speeches and demonstrations, but very much the uh, social media that they used helped to show up the existing media's self-censorship uh, and to develop citizen media, both in terms of journalism and photography. And these demonstrations, these uh, uses of modern uh, media became what we are calling training grounds, if you will, for political activism and what we're calling mediapreneurship. Um, media in the hands of these younger demonstrators and these younger activists using Facebook and Twitter and all of the different mechanisms they were using, blogs and texting and video sharing, empowered them. 
and that's what I'd like to look at today. The um, experience was transformational. It um, affected them in that there was what we're looking at as a, as a sort of positive feedback uh, loop. They were involved. Uh, their involvement led to influence, and their influence led to a sense of empowerment. There was a collective action which uh, increased their political skills. Their political skills were uh, by being able to be agnostic. As uh, Luke mentioned, they could work across all different platforms. This developed local momentum, which then translated not only into sharing information in their own uh, local uprising areas, but transferring across borders into the region, and of course sharing things internationally. Uh, they took advantage of what I, we call political opportunity, which is basically advantageous circumstance that came up. During that period, it was very much the sort of shock aspect of political opportunity, whether it was the self-immolation of a fruit seller uh, in uh, Tunisia or whether it was the government suddenly deciding to uh, destroy a local park in Istanbul. Today, we see it as a different form of political opportunity. Basically, we're seeing that transition, uh, which is what all of the Middle East has been in since the uh, Arab uprisings and the Gezi Park demonstrations. All of the Middle East is in transition, and that is a political opportunity for activists to be uh, bringing new ideas, new techniques, new technologies, and in fact, new forms of leadership. Let me quickly look back, so just to give you a bit of context as to what it looked like in Tunisia as we went into the Arab Spring from the new media perspective. Basically, we had uh, error messages being uh, brought up almost in every guise whenever new media was being used. It was so pervasive that it was called Amar. It actually had a nickname. Uh, Amar in uh, Arabic means someone cool. So it was a complete uh, sort of spoof on what the government was doing. And at the same time, what was happening is that the demonstrators and the people that were working with the new media were going around the government all the time. So we had uh, a number of uh, celebrity activists. There was Lena Benmeni who became uh, so well known for her blog, the Tunisian girl that she was nominated for a Nobel. Uh, there was Slim Amamou, who uh, after the success of the uh, revolution in Tunisia was nominated to become uh, the uh, Minister of Youth and Sport. And basically they became the journalists that were celebrities during the revolution. Um, the media uh, became so valuable to the revolution that today it is still thought of its greatest gain. Um, I won't repeat what you can read up there, I'll move on. But what basically happened when uh, Ben Ali left was censorship absolutely died overnight. And this was a huge shock and uh, became what uh, Isaiah Berlin describes as uh, negative freedom. It became freedom from uh, uh, over-involvement by outside forces, interference, if you will. And what also happened was that suddenly there was freedom too, to be able to publish anything, to say things that had absolutely been constrained by the previous dictatorship. 
However, there's supposed to be some kind of a balance in that in any given society. And what began to happen as pluralism began to take hold was that new red lines started coming down. And those red lines have very much affected the social media, uh, digital media world as much as the, uh, the, the uh, regular media. So we saw initially a time of euphoria, lots of uh, uh, fun and expression in all different ways. And little by little, that started making the public really uncomfortable. Soon new red lines came up. Uh, the uh, first real break was when um, Persepolis was uh, presented by Nesba TV, which spawned an enormous amount of uprising by Salafists that came into the uh, streets and shook up the uh, newly elected government and the uh, red lines came down about what was accepted in terms of uh, religious uh, acceptability. Um, so the question then became really freedom for whom? Who was going to decide? Um, this also got expressed in two other ways, social decency in a very conservative society, if you will. Uh, mass paper Etincia published this uh, picture uh, that they republished from German GQ of a uh, footballer that was well known who was half Tunisian. Uh, that didn't go down well at all. The publisher was fined and that kind of picture doesn't show up in Tunisia anymore. Uh, state security and terrorism likewise became major red lines. Um, there were a number of uh, cases with bloggers, for example, Yassina Yari, who was uh, fined for defaming the army on Facebook after he criticized the defense minister and was um, charged for three years in absentia uh, in the courts. So what we see today is a response to all of that. I used uh, Tunisia as my base ground for that, but the same kinds of things were happening in Turkey and are happening in Turkey and in Morocco. So I want to look into what actually exists today. Henda Chinoi, I think in many ways, she's a Tunisian um, uh, journalist and she, wraps up, she, she expresses very much the fact that the generation that's active today feels as though the online capability, the uh, social media is their tool. They get it, they know how to use it, and they're going to be adopting the alternative. And many of the alternatives um, are out of this sense of empowerment that, we, that we've seen. Very basically, I'll run through some of these. They're a little bit um, hard to take. But the, um, the fact of the matter is that the rise in uh, social media use and internet use in that region absolutely boomed by chance during that very period of the uprisings. And so we see that um, well over half of the populations in uh, Turkey uh, reported being active social media users and in Morocco and Tunisia, mobile subscriptions uh, significantly exceed the total population, including babies, one would imagine. Um, this comes down to uh, a very effective environment for social media to work. And I describe it in three areas here. Asabia is basically the, uh, a word that comes from tribalism. It means the, the, the social consciousness of sharing and uh, works extremely well if you think of the social media of networking. 
uh, inbuilt networks of family, tribe, faith, generational exchange, and ethnicity. And this is something that has worked really well with social media uh, in the Middle East. So there's been a great deal of interaction. Um, you can see here people get news. The young people are the uh, bright blue on the top in Tunisia and the red in uh, Turkey on the bottom. They're getting more, um, uh, I'm sorry, the um, blue on the bottom as well. Both of them are the lighter blue. They're getting a lot more news from the internet, a lot more news from exchange. And, the, and if, if you look at the far right, um, is it right on this side? Yeah, of the Tunisia, exchange through individuals, through common knowledge of who you have friends and family is high in all the generations. So they're just transferring what used to be verbal now through uh, the mobile and the social media. Um, whoops, that's the wrong sign I just pressed. There we go. Um, in Turkey, um, we see that during the uprisings, uh, the self-censorship that was being exercised in the um, conventional media, even CNN Turk was at the time of Gezi Park uh, basically projecting uh, a whole documentary about uh, penguins. And you can see that's one of the cartoons that came out afterwards, even as Twitter and Facebook were being banned because that's the way that Gezi actually worked. And this particular uh, graph also shows to what degree uh, the tweeting was taking place in Turkey at that time. Uh, the most popular Facebook uh, pay, uh, page in Turkey is Facebook for Every Phone, a web app that lets you access uh, Facebook even if you don't have uh, a smartphone. Uh, Turkey has around 1.75 million users on Twitter for a population of 75 million. And uh, their active tweeting over this period soared 138% following the government's temporary banning of the site. So obviously banning it didn't help at all in terms of keeping people down. This um, has, as I say, now translated into a whole new form of activism today as these very same people have felt a sense of empowerment, of new skill sets, and of being credible because Unlike the conventional media during the uprisings and the demonstrations period that were thought of as not being credible, as being regime insiders, as being not trustable, it was the new media that were on the site able to adjust the news as it was rolling and were also new, known as not being part of the regime, as not being insiders. So today, Social media news is considered considerably more trustworthy and considerably more newsworthy. And in fact, as we were talking about changing headlines, that's considered an asset. You can change to respond. It means that the, the audience is a, is a live responder to the nature of the media that's being generated. So just to quickly, oh, and in Morocco, the PJD today uh, won the election most recently. That shows you how much they're effective at reaching their audience through uh, all much better than the other um, parties. They're the ones that can reach their audiences through Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and their own blogs. And the people voted for them. One more aspect of credibility here. I think I've already gone on that, so I think I'll just uh, keep on going. These are the various sites that I have just, for the sake of giving you a sense, um, we are seeing that they are 
absolutely uh, constantly being generated. A number of them are older from the period of the uprisings. A lot of them are new. Um, one full category is doing news in English so that it didn't need to be translated. So in Tunisia, you have Tunisia Live, very slick, the scrappy um, sites that used to exist at the beginning of the uprisings, uh, those are gone. Now we have very slick news. Um, Tunisia Live runs the only who's who that's available in Tunisia, so it's got that aspect of the blog. And in Morocco, there's also a similar site. Uh, young journalists, they've had a lot of trouble in terms of funding. They're hanging in there doing a, uh, a, a news site that's purely in English. The second category is the older sites that really made an impact on the uh, uprisings themselves. They've revamped. They've become much slicker. Here you can see Al Nawat uh, publishing in uh, French, English, and Arabic simultaneously. And I have um, in a number of these live uh, websites, but I'm not going to do it because we don't have enough time for me to sort of go back and forth. Uh, but they do a great deal of data mining and uh, graphics in order to bring different uh, cases to the public. They also have a whistleblowing site. They're very counterculture, very activist. A lot of their journalists are not journalists. They're actually activists. Um, 140 journals. This is uh, in uh, Turkey. And um, it was founded by a 21-year-old college student. Calls itself Counter Media. It, it's an initiative that's basically what they view as a data project rather than journalism. And um, they output primarily from Twitter, although this most recent uh, set that I was able to bring up not only has a new bird, the uh, old bird was much more innocent, the new bird looks much more dangerous. Um, but it's also got a new app, so you can actually get it. They too uh, are agnostic. They're working on all different uh, levels, and this is a very good example of it. They uh, crowdsource for vote counting during elections and consistently cover uh, news that the uh, government doesn't. Le Desk, it's manned by uh, experienced journalists that keep getting thrown out of one site after another. So the danger, of course, in all of these places is that the government does not really believe in any of these instances in uh, non-censorship, in the media being the fourth estate. Uh, so consistently wipes out uh, sites and they keep coming back. So Ledesk at the moment is subscription-based. Uh, quite controversial, does long pieces as well. Uh, and that one is from Morocco. Balsala made a major difference in the Tunisian um, elections. This one, again, unfortunately, I can't show you because it'll take too much time, but that little half moon was actually the parliament. And you could, you could go up and each seat would bounce up the person that was filling that seat, who they were, what uh, party they were representing, and whether they had, for example, voted. And one of the first things Balsala pointed out was a whole lot of the people that were supposed to be representing the Tunisian people to create a new constitution weren't bothering to come. And so that caused a huge brouhaha. And people ended up towards the end of the whole process before the constitution was adopted coming because Balsala embarrassed them so badly on the public uh, sphere. Uh, oh dear, I've just done that. 
that's what I didn't want to do. So now how do I get out of this? Tom, I need you. Oh, help. <laughs> yeah, this, I'm sorry, there was a live. You see, there you can see what I'm saying. It shows the different individuals. I might as well take advantage of this. I'll try not to do the next ones. Um, um, okay, so now how do I get back? To the beginning. Uh, you may be a new I know. <laughs> okay, but now how do I get on to the next one without going back? Ah, Inkifada is one of my very, very favorites. This one is a magazine, does long pieces, a little bit describing some of the things that you were talking about, finding the gaps, doing LGBT and uh, 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 refugee workers without licenses and um, women uh, difficulties. They do in-depth things. Uh, they're very, very well regarded. One of their most extraordinary, I have to tell you, Tom, I'm about to do the same thing again on this one, is this incredible interactive map. Um, and I won't, I'm not going to get up on it. He's going to help me out of this. But um, it shows how many of the uh, terrorists have been killed. Those are the ones in white. How many of the um, uh, soldiers have been killed, they're the ones in black, and then at any given moment you can click on the date and it will show you where the terrorist activity took place and uh, what the map looks like. And for Tunisia, which never had any of this, it's one of the most vivid examples. Now I just want to move on to the next one, which is I've only got two more. You can see I'm very excited about these. Um, okay, Platform 24. Uh, was launched in 2013, founded by young celebrity journalists that had all just been thrown out of their uh, conventional media positions because of difference of opinion with what the government of Erdogan was doing. And um, they too are acting as witnesses is what their, uh, their uh, mission statement is and very often are actually focusing on the iniquities uh, taking place against the media. Um, finally, there are the more straightforward ones as well. There's Hespress, which is uh, similar in, uh, to something called Bionet in Turkey. It is basically doing better than the government does uh, by towing the government line. It doesn't really break from that, but it's doing much better investigative journalism, a very high caliber across a very wide range. and presenting multiple viewpoints. And very interestingly, every month it summarizes all of the commentary that comes in and is posted so that the people reading it feel as though their viewpoints are being taken on and thematically uh, made into stories. Very interesting departure. Finally, there is, of course, the counter rhetoric to, pr to uh, protect democracy. Fuat Avni and um, in, in Turkey and Chris Coleman in uh, Morocco were known as the mystery tweeters. And uh, very separately, nothing to do with each other, uh, Fuat Avni seemed to have an inside line from the cabinet. Nobody knew who he was right before one of the big newspapers would be shut down or right before one of the big media uh, celebrity journalists would be fired. Over and over and over again, he alerted the population uh, through tweeting. And the same thing with, um, with Chris Coleman. He kept, kept coming up with all sorts of things to embarrass the Moroccan government and the, uh, and the court. 
Both of them have quieted at the moment, which does somehow suggest that the governments have figured out who they are and they're behind bars. But the point is that these are all activist journalists operating in media that is itself rapidly changing so that the governments themselves really don't know how to, to keep them down. The enormity in, the, in these uh, environments of trolling, of phishing, of all the other mechanisms by which to narrow them, shut them down, change them so you don't even know who they are online is vast. And yet we find that the ones that keep making the conversation that's actually dominating are these young mediapreneurs. Thank you. Roxanne, thank you very much. Uh, I want to take the opportunity, if you have any questions, to put them to our panelists. We have a couple of uh, roving uh, microphones uh, to bring in. Uh, Roxanne, who's over there? There we are. Um, Sorry, I had to get <laughs> no, some no, that, water. That's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely fine. I just wanted to, to, to quickly ask you, though, uh, in terms of the authorities' response to um, the social media activists and, uh, and bloggers in the Middle East, other than, of course, uh, locking them up, do the authorities use social media themselves, either above the line or covertly, in order to make sure that the state's message is understood in this group? Or, or have they simply lost that one to, to the new bloggers? Oh, no, they're very, very, very active. The trolling is, is in particularly in Turkey at the moment, is staggering. Uh, people literally don't know if they're looking at something that somebody that's an AKP supporter, a government of uh, Erdogan's party supporter, or whether it's an actual real one. There's uh, t Twitter uh, addresses that are constantly being stolen. There's an enormous amount of internet, um, of the names that, in fact, uh, one of my, my um, the art one of the articles that are coming out on my uh, project is surveillance in online surveillance in uh, Turkey and th they, they even have what seems to be a media of naming the different ways that the government comes in and, and, and it's, it's vast. I mean it goes on for pages and pages. And so of course yeah, it, they're it's very not, It's not generally it's not being reported, it is being reported, but there are still continuing arrests of, of groups and individuals in, in Turkey I believe. Oh absolutely, there are arrests in all of them. Morocco is terrible. It gets much less coverage because Morocco is one of our friends. But it's uh, I, I guess I guess I guess Tur <laughs> Turkey at the front of my mind, obviously, because of, because of the coup in, in Yeah, coup well, and because in, nobody's in quite sure weeks. who's a Galenist, who were these Galenists anyway, and the AKP and this whole sort of mystery of the internal and the external triangles. But it, within all of this, it's been fascinating to see the consistency by which particularly in Turkey, just simply the, the size of the media market is, e is staggering. And the number of new sites that just completely keep coming up is extraordinary. While something like in Morocco, there, there are not that many, but it will be the same people that have come in with it. You know, there's, there's one site called Lacombe, and I think we're on Lacombe 3 at this point because they keep getting shut down and a new set keeps coming up. And they try things like subscriptions so that people can't see them all the time and they can vet people coming in and looking. Let's take a few questions if we have. You raise your hand if you have something that you want to ask the panelists. There is a lady in the white, either a pullover or a scarf, I'm not quite sure, but uh, uh, your chance to ask a question. 
Hi, this is a question may mainly for Roxanne, but maybe Luke as well, because it's kind of about the younger generation. And it's, does your study of like social media reporting in Tunisia, Morocco, all of them, does that make you feel that in like first world countries like our own, does it make you feel a bit sad for the younger generation in the apathy we show towards reporting and politics? And you compare it with the Arab Spring and uprisings there. And yet, we're looking at BuzzFeed watching videos of cats. <laughs> I mean, not just videos of cats, <laughs> but there are videos of cats mm. on there. Well, shall I, shall I go first? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's just been completely overplayed, the idea that millennials are completely disengaged from politics. Um, and after the EU referendum, there was a story that everyone shared which said that, you know, if, if only young people had turned out in high numbers, um, Remain would have prevailed. But the figure was complete nonsense. Uh, and it turned out that young people had turned out in pretty high numbers, far higher than in, a, in a, any general election. Um, so I think it's a myth, you know, and, and, and that's why on, on BuzzFeed you have the, the, the close sort of coexistence of news and entertainment, because people are, are you know, just as interested in the original reporting we do as in the entertainment content. Entertainment content. It's not like they're only coming for the entertainment content. They ping from one to the other. Really back that up? I mean, is, it, uh, is that really true? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like I was saying earlier, yeah. the, the, the most read post globally was that, that Stanford letter. Sure, I know. And, I mean, there are, the, there are the ones that run mm. the trend, but uh, on average, you know, entertainment versus, you know, I know, I know yeah, you I don't mean, categorize it them, them hardly Yeah, that you way. could have a look at yourself. If you go to buzzfeed.com slash hops, that shows you mm. the most read articles in the UK right now. And mm. I would say the majority of them would be entertainment. A lot of lists and quizzes in there. Mm. Um, I, I find on, on Cambridge 105, AW politicians about the city deal here, and uh, you know, but, it, but it turns out that you know the, my most listened to podcast is the one with the guy who wanted to put Ainsley Harriet on the back of the five pound note. You know, it just, yeah. uh, the, the, the the public, what public says and what public does, often also, seems to be very different. The, you know, the older generation that, that that reads newspapers. I mean, large numbers of them bought the newspapers primarily for the sports or for the crosswords or for the puzzles yeah. or the horoscopes. You know, the horoscopes have always been a huge, hugely important driver of, um, of readership for newspapers. And if you go back to when the Daily Express was a good newspaper, they'd have had all of those things in there yeah. along, al along with so the So the idea that the older generation, you know, they're reading, you know, the political reporting and the younger generation is just completely disengaged and, and wants cat videos, I mean, it's th that's nonsense. Yeah. Uh, Roxanne, how, how do you um, com compare what's, what's happening between uh, the two sets of audiences? I think that's a really good question. And I think that having been in the Middle East and North Africa, in Turkey, during some of that period, if the same thing had happened here, it wouldn't just be people turning out from that generation and voting. They would have been totally in the streets. There would have been blogs and exchanges and uh, all sorts of s online activities and generating things out of this country, which is, you know, a little bit what happened there. There was, there was no buzz from the, from the youth here uh, during Brexit. And had there been, possibly it would have been a very different thing. The only great, you know, the question I think arises is that the youth were pulling into the, the streets and into the squares, along with many that were not young. One has to also admit that there was a greater co you know, continuity across generations. Because there was a sense of uh, that 
I mean, the, the three things they talked about was, you know, dignity, uh, democracy or social justice, uh, and, uh, and food, uh, bread. And um, those are very fundamental. That aspect of dignity, I think, was actually expressed in this particular uh, election or referendum on the other side. I think it was those who wanted to leave that felt a sense of indignity about what the situation currently is. So in a way, it's hard to, to, uh, to compare. But certainly the sense of what might happen if, there, if the vote had gone the way it did was something that uh, a certain <coughs> complacency among the youth here does uh, project. And it would have felt a very, very different way had there been more activity. Because I can tell you, being in those settings, in that kind of environment, it is, it, it's like a, a quiet revolution. I mean, the, the, the buzz and the activity and the sharingness is extraordinary. Everybody has all read the same things, and it's all happening very, very rapidly. Now, I'll take one more question, too, if we get quick answers. Oh, dear, we've got lots of people now. Gentleman right at the back, because I think the microphone's closest to him. We'll wait for it to arrive. I'm wondering if any of you feel that you're he uh, held hostage to the idea, the concept of the news, in the sense that novelty is not necessarily the most interesting criterion for a piece of information. And do you feel that, you, you, that the most important piece of information is, is perhaps not the newest piece of information? And are there ways to convince an audience to seek out the importance as opposed to just going after whatever is most novel, what is new today, what is new this week. Maybe something that happened six months ago is actually much more important. More pop charts of I news. Mean, I mean, yeah, we don't, we don't break news, really. I mean, we do by accident, but we, we, don't, we don't look for the new. We, we say, you know, this, thi this strange thing that happened a year ago is actually very relevant today, and here, here's why, or this, is, this wasn't noticed and it's important, or... You know, we just, we're not driven by the news agenda really at all, apart from occasionally when something we, we consider that is both newsworthy and we consider very important. This lady was asking too, I mean, you, young people are hugely interested in the news and there's tons and tons of research from all kinds of different people showing that. What they're not necessarily drawn to is news as journalists and news organizations have traditionally right. defined it, um, nor are they necessarily drawn to it in a traditional format. Um, but, it's, it, but it's not a disinterest by any means in, in news or information or context or background or any of those kinds of things. It's, it's the uh, format. Yeah, no. Well, and I would say there's an element of the aspect of truth that's part of news. I mean, is mm -hmm. it the record or is it the opinion? Um, Turkey's famous for having a, a, Middle East, a, a media that's only opinion. There is no news. And the whole idea of investigative journalism is relatively new in a media that's been controlled. So it really, you know, having some hard, truthful news can be a very valuable commodity. Right, there's a lady, um, uh, a lady and a gentleman, I think. Lady who's in that row, right by you, uh, Mr. Blue T-shirt man. There we are. But, but <laughs> no, raise your hand again, ma'am. There we go. I have a feeling from last year that the recording cuts out after 90 minutes. So goodbye, everybody, and please ask your question. <laughs> Well, thank you. Well, actually, you had uh, two uh, closely related questions, one of them more general, the other slightly more specific. So my general question to the panel would be, how do you see the future of foreign reporting, foreign news coverage in the West, in mainstream outlets? Because I guess, well, these days, one could be excused for thinking that it's, it's all quite bleak. We hear about financial cuts, job cuts, 
one co correspondence being forced to cover uh, several countries simultaneously, not really having the local knowledge requires to really, uh, really do the do the work well. Uh, and my more specific question is, is, is relating this to Luke specifically about uh, BuzzFeed's uh, BuzzFeed World News operation. Because, well, I was a reporter in Moscow uh, a few years ago, and, well, I could see a trend, um, well, many correspondents at uh, traditional outlets either moving to BuzzFeed or considering moving to BuzzFeed or considering working with BuzzFeed. So it just seemed like uh, BuzzFeed's foreign news operation was expanding. There was a huge recruitment drive. And I just wonder what the situation is, is like now. Do you think that can be sustained? Should that be reverse order? If you go, if you go yeah. first, uh, uh, Luke, on the, uh, the foreign, foreign desk Yeah, the, the foreign reporting team is still growing. It's not growing as fast as, as some teams at BuzzFeed. Uh, but the one way that, w that we approach it, which does keep costs down a, a little bit, is that we ha don't necessarily have permanent bureau reporters. We have more of like a, a, a beat structure. So for example, we hired a brilliant uh, reporter called Gina Moore, who is just a global women's um, rights reporter. And she, she goes wherever in the world women's rights are kind of like a hot button topic that's worth reporting on. Um, and so you sort of get far more value out of her reporting because she's going to the parts of the world where you know, there is most interest, there's most going on. So you, you don't necessarily have that thing of having, oh my god, we've got, we're paying for a guy to be in Beijing 365 days of the year most of the year, there's nothing worth reporting for a British audience. But isn't that more expensive? <laughs> because you're paying her salary full-time and you're paying her, paying her travel costs. Well, I, mean, I guess it, it's the same amount of money, but you're getting more value out of it in terms of the reporting and the number of people who will read those stories because they're more hot-button hot topics. Yeah. I if mean, that makes I have, sense. To, to come to your first question, I have an anecdote I remember... I was invited by the government of Rwanda to go over there in 2010, or I think it was, to report on all the great work they've been doing on uh, gender equality and also on um, the environment, um, biodiversity and preservation of, of the rainforest. And it is true, they are doing a lot on both of those fronts, and it's really good. But the elephant in the room was this election that Paul Kagame was about to win with 93% of the vote. As you <laughs> and, you know, I sort of started asking awkward questions about, about those kinds of things. And obviously, he was given quite short shrift by this global PR firm that was working for the Rwandan government. The Rwandan government gets all this aid money, and they hire a global PR firm that charges them a fortune to bring journalists into... And there, there was somebody from The Guardian there. There was someone from all the different um, news organisations. And nobody said this government was paid for by... Th this trip was paid for by the government of Rwanda. So uh, it's... I mean, it's a problem. It's a real problem um, because the, bu the budget isn't there to, to send people to all these places all the time um, or, to, as you say, to keep people living there. Um, so you get in, in different interest groups coming in and kind of offering to pick up the tab with, with their own agendas. I guess the, the days of, you know, the... the, the old journalist in the linen suit and the, the Panama hat just hanging around African states just in case there happened to be a revolution in which he'd be, be an expert. That, that's presumably gone and it's, uh, it, it's, it's parachuting in, isn't it? Although I noticed the BBC have decided they don't have enough money to send Hugh Edwards if a big story breaks anymore. They'll have to curiously rely on a reporter. Well, yeah, I'm sure he can do a good job, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but they do rely on people. So they have a network of people who, who they know who are around the world, and when something happens, they can call on them. But, it, but it's not having the guy sitting around and drinking the, 
cocktails in the bar for a living now. But you <laughs> see on, on Al Jazeera, for example, you see, and actually the BBC as well for that matter, you see a lot more uh, indigenous reporters, a lot uh, people who are, are from, from the country. You don't necessarily hear the, the, the British accent coming back. It's quite often somebody who's, or at least some of the team are, 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 are journalists who are, are brought up in a particular area. Well, certainly Al Jazeera is well known for, for uh, letting other people train uh, the local journalists and then picking them up when they're already pros. They're extremely uh, bright. They're, they're at the top of their game. I mean, I have to say, having worked with Al Jazeera reporters in every single one of the places that we've been, just simply to say, chapeau, we're here, don't be scared, we're something else, don't interfere with us, um, they've been quite an interesting set to get to know. Uh, very I, ha well I have informed. a feeling I'm going to be told I need to wrap up. Well, can I take this gentleman's question down? Can I do that? Brilliant. Let's uh, get the gentleman down there uh, to ask his question, then we'll, we'll wrap up once we've, we've hopefully got an answer. Great. Thanks so much. Um, so my question is about the power of social media in distributing news. Um, so I know that Facebook in particular has quite publicly said that they are a platform, not a publisher, um, and yet they still have community standards that in effect, act as editorial standards. And so quite publicly, or uh, a recent example of this was Napalm Girl being sort of taken down after being published by a Norwegian website. Um, and so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about how does a journalist handle sort of the power, the editorial power of new media being distributed on social media? Thanks. Funny question for Luke. I mean, all I'd say about that is that I think for Facebook to say that they're not a media company is a shocking abdication <laughs> of responsibility, like a moral responsibility, because the world is going to Facebook for its information now. You know, they, they, and, and they do clearly make value judgments. They make the same kind of decisions publishers have to make. You know, and they, the, you know, the, the, um, that photo you mentioned is an example. But they don't want the hassle of having to write you know, proper editorial guidelines. These are things that media companies have to do, and Facebook just can't be bothered. And I'm trying to remember that, 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 that story of Napalm Girl. Was, was she removed by a computer algorithm initially, or, or was, was there some human intervention involved in that? I think it was human intervention because it kept happening. They kept, right, they kept okay. taking it down. Um, and also, the, the other huge problem with, with Facebook is, is the prevalence of fake news. You know, and one people have worked out the one way to get like massive massive engagement is to create a page that specializes in po in very very um, right-wing fake news um, and so that's a problem with the platform like somebody taken a picture of I think a queues outside of a northern rock building society and said it was uh, a food bank in in Tory Britain or, or, what, or mm. whatever that they'd yeah, said. and I think Facebook need to take responsibility for that it is affecting politics profoundly. On the other hand, I think that this is the kind of problem, to be honest, that journalism has always had, whether it's been yellow journalism in print or whether it's been, you know, uh, um, pirate uh, channels on radio. I mean, basically it is, there, there's always been one big aspect of it that's professional and there's been one aspect of it that's been a lot more able to be projected, whether it's your local newspaper in some little podunk town. I mean, I remember being in, uh, uh, this will date me and age me, but I remember being in the you know, back country of the USA 
uh, the day that Monica Lewinsky's story broke in, uh, in the United States. And the headline was Sheriff in Movie as Extra. And that was the big so story on a three-page local. And then there was all sorts of stuff about all sorts of things. And President Clinton was never mentioned because it wasn't a story. So I think you know they, there can be always the indicators. It, yes, it's become more global. It's become more distributed. And it's become more mobile. I think that's clearly where we you know, have these issues that are still very much front and center. But it's an old story. And I think it's really what news and what information is done with by who and, and why and where. I'm sensing we should probably wrap up at uh, this point, a little bit over time, but uh, really good discussion. And thank you very much uh, for all of you for taking part and to uh, all of you for listening. Thank you very much.